2: Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, October 12th. I'm your host, Terry Arango, with my guest, Dr. Paul Connett. Dr. Connett holds a doctorate in chemistry from Dartmouth and retired from a full professorship at St. Lawrence University, where he specialized in environmental chemistry and toxicology. Our topic today is his new book, The Case Against Fluoride how hazardous waste ended up in our drinking water, and the bad science and powerful politics that keep it there. Welcome, Dr. Connett.
0: Thank you, Terry.
2: Let's start with some basic information, Dr. Connett. What is fluoride, where is it derived from, and what is the difference between the fluoride used in drinking water and the fluoride used for other purposes?
0: Well, fluoride is a compound containing the element fluorine, and the the chemicals used in fluoridating water up to one milligram per liter, that's the average level, one part per million, is either sodium fluoride, that's in about 10% of the communities fluoridating, or the hexafluorosilicates. And where do they come from? They all come from the phosphate fertilizer industry. They are hazardous waste products which can't be dumped into the sea by international law, but if, they, if somebody purchases them, then they become a product and are no longer covered by hazardous waste regulations. And the people purchasing these substances are, are, of course, your local public water supply.
2: All right. But is there a difference between what you've just mentioned that is put into the public's drinking water and what is, say, used in a dentist's office?
0: Yes, a big difference. The, the, the chemicals that are used in toothpaste, whether it's sodium fluoride, stannous fluoride, or sodium monofluorophosphate, are all pharmaceutical-grade. They're all pure substances, a food-grade, pharmaceutical-grade. The chemicals that are used in, in the fluoridate, the water supply, are industrial-grade. They're, in fact, hazardous materials. They, they are derived from the wet scrubbing system. A spray of water captures two very toxic gases, hydrogen fluoride and silicon tetrafluoride, and in the process makes a solution of hexafluorosilicic acid. And in addition to the hexafluorosilicic acid are a number of other contaminants which were in the rock that's being processed. That includes arsenic, lead, mercury, even radioactive isotopes. The, the rock, the phosphate rock that is mined for this purpose in Florida is also mined to extract uranium.
2: So even though the, the fluoride that's used in the drinking water is far worse than the fluoride used, uh, the pharmaceutical-grade fluoride, I, I have still heard of uh, people who have had bad reactions, children who have had bad reactions, or children and adults who have been advised against fluoride in uh, fluoride treatments at the dentist's office, uh, fluoride in toothpaste, and uh, fluoride in anesthesia. Is that correct?
0: That, that is correct. Um, all of those things are correct. I think they've stopped using the fluorohaline uh, fluorinated compounds as anas- in anesthetics, but all of that is so there are people that are sensitive to fluoride in fluoridated toothpaste. And yes, some people are very sensitive to very low levels of fluoride. You've got to remember, the fluoride is a very toxic substance. It interferes with a lot of biochemical, biological processes. So whether it's pure or whether it is industrial grade, it's still a very toxic substance.
2: Yes, I know a, of a boy uh, who had a bad experience with a fluoride treatment in his dentist's office, a little boy, and then he had anesthesia that contained fluorine. So uh, he, he suffered regression and uh, his parents needed to uh, work again on bringing him forward from that. So fluoride, bad stuff. What was Was there scientific evidence as to safety and efficacy before mass water fluoridation practices were started? What were the flaws in the early trials upon which the current practices are built?
0: Well, we, we actually cover that in two chapters of the book, The Case Against Fluoride. We call it the, the Great Fluoridation Gamble. There was very little study done before fluoride, the fluoride trials began in 1945. And before those trials being completed, the U.S. Public Health Service then um, endorsed fluoridation in 1950. None of the trials had been completed, and there was really no substantial medical evidence on the table. So it really wasn't a scientific decision. Obviously, some politics was operating at that point in 1950. But once the U.S. Public Health Service had endorsed fluoridation, then all the professional bodies just rolled over like a string of dominoes. I mean, if the U.S. Public Health Service said it was okay, then it was okay for them.
2: Yeah, uh, we're getting a little bit ahead, but since you've mentioned the, the public health service, uh, I'll, I'll share with listeners that one of my favorite lines in this book is, quote, the science of investigation was replaced by the politics of promotion. It continues, this situation has continued to the present day as a result Fluoride has become a protected pollutant and fluoridation a protected practice. Dr. Connett, that to me sounds just like what has happened with the, uh, the vaccine autism issue.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Once, once, the, um, once the public policy has been established, it's very difficult to reverse. It becomes a dogma. And the way that the public health service or today the Department of Health and Human Services uh, works, it's like a chain of command. Decisions are made at the center. Policies are established at the center. And then it's passed down through the state health departments, down to local health boards, and so on, right the way down to your your GP. And, um, and, And people don't question these policies. And after a while, it becomes more important for the credibility of the agencies to protect the policy rather than protecting the health. And where that shows up most grievously today is that the, the Department of Health and Human Services and all its agencies is not doing the kind of science, that basic science, that you would expect. They're, they're just not doing the studies. When studies of harm are found in other countries which have high natural levels of fluoride, as in India and China, where people's bones have been wrecked, and uh, IQs have been lowered, and many, many other things. These studies are not being repeated. They spend all their effort trying to critique the methodologies, not in trying to reproduce the study uh, in, in the United States. And as I say, the most basic things have not been done. And so they're really working backwards. They're working backwards from the need to keep this practice going at all costs. It's become almost a sacred, almost a religious belief now.
2: Eureka! That sounds exactly like the vaccine autism question.
0: Yeah,
2: precisely. So we've discussed that there was not uh, there was not sufficient scientific evidence as to uh, to establish safety and efficacy before mass water fluoridation practices were started. Uh, can you elaborate uh, upon the flaws in the early trials upon which the current practices are built?
0: Yes. The, 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 the key study was done by Trenley Dean from the U.S. Public Health Service. It was the famous 21-city study in which he showed that uh, tooth decay was lowered as, as fluoride levels in the water increased. The trouble with that study is he only used 21 cities. He had data from many more, maybe as many as 100 cities. So why did he only choose 21? That looks like cherry-picking the data also he he his control of other confounding variables, like income levels, like other minerals in the water which could have contributed to better teeth or, or worse teeth. Um, and he didn't control for the level of sunshine, which is also we know today, is um, very important in making vitamin D, which in turn is important for calcium metabolism, the growth of teeth, the bone and teeth development. So very, very poor controls very limited database. And then when you get into the trials themselves, those trials today would be laughed out of court. I mean, they were, the methodology was so poor. And so it was very clear at that time that they were racing to confirm with artificial fluoridation what Dean had said or believed was happening with natural fluoride levels. You see, in, back in the 40s, Even the the key thing was the the finding that fluoride caused this condition called dental fluorosis. At the time, it was called dental mottling. This is a discoloration and mottling of the tooth enamel, which was occurring in different parts of the United States, Colorado, Texas, Arizona, and other places. And for for about 30 years, they struggled to find out what was causing this, this disfiguration. And eventually, in 1931, they found it was fluoride in the water, Meanwhile, those people that were observing this condition were saying, strangely, even though the teeth look awful, there's less tooth decay. And that's when they said, well, maybe there's a level of fluoride in the water which will reduce tooth decay without causing too much of this dental fluorosis. And Dean came back and said, one part per million is the optimal level that will only give about 10% of the children the very mildest of dental fluorosis, hardly noticeable, at the same time reducing tooth decay. So that was the great trade-off. The great, and the great gamble, the great gamble was that you could do this, you could disfigure the enamel and change the biology of the uh, production of the enamel in the growing tooth cells without affecting other, any other tissue in, in the body. And I think that was reckless, in my view, reckless. And now, of course, even one half of the gamble hasn't worked we have 32% of American children, according to the Center for Disease Control, 2005, and they are a promoter of fluoridation. They admit that now 32% of all American children have dental fluorosis. And meanwhile, on the other half of the equation, the evidence that it's doing any good is extremely weak.
2: You have another uh, great quote in this book. I'm... Trying to find it right now, but you—you you reminded me of, of again uh, early on in the 20th century, the last century. There was one so-called study done on thimerosal, uh, the mercury-containing compound that was used as a so-called preservative in vaccines. That was used on—I think it was 1939—used uh, on 29 dying meningitis patients for forgive me if I've gotten any of this wrong uh, and the, you know if, if the patients died anyway they said well you know the mercury was not problematic to that effect and, and what you just cited as the Dean study reminded me of that limited database uh, et cetera
0: Yeah well I think that I think that's one of the great outrages of the, of the 20th century was the deliberate injection of organic mercury into a baby's bloodstream I mean I don't know who sanctioned that just outrageous we know that organic mercury interferes with the mental baby's mental development and to deliberately inject it into a baby's bloodstream because you don't want to refrigerate vaccines you want to be able to send them without refrigeration around the world it to me is absolutely obscene
2: it's unconscionable yes and and that study so-called study uh was used as a basis and uh a very shaky basis, and that's an understatement. So let's pick up with this when we come back for a break that. at the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Medico. We'll be right back.
3: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
4: Calm.
2: All right, I have found some information on that study to which I was referring, and I got my year wrong. It was 1929, not 1939, and I found a website that says, 1929, Dr. K. C. Smithburn, out of sheer desperation of having nothing to cure his patients, injected 22 patients who were dying of meningitis with samarasol. The patients received up to 10 milligrams of samarasol per kilogram intravenously. Two of the patients developed phlebitis, or sloughing of the skin. Sloughing of the skin is essentially the breakdown of the skin itself. The study was not meant to examine toxicity. Seven of the 22 patients died within one day. The specific clinical assessments were not described, and no laboratory studies were reported. All of the patients died from the meningitis, and the doctor reported that they did not develop symptoms of shock before they died. And then October 1929, Eli Lilly and company registered samarisol under the trade name Mersiolate. What do you think about that, Dr. Conant?
0: I, I think it's outrageous. And, and we have parallels uh, in our fluoridation subject. The chief toxicologist of the Manhattan Project, Harold Hodge, who oversaw one of the first trials of fluoridation in Kingsburg, Kingston-Newburgh. He was chairman of the committee that promoted the study and oversaw it every step of the way. They were getting low-dose data of fluoride toxicity in children. That's what they wanted for the Manhattan Project. But he was also involved in the team, and we talk about this in the book, that injected plutonium into terminal patients without their knowledge. And, and he, he, in turn, became the big, the, the leading figure, if you like, the guru of toxicology who stood in front of blackboards and said, one part per million of fluoride is safe. So the same guy that is injecting plutonium into terminal patients is the same guy who's telling the the world that fluoridation is perfectly safe and is conducting an experiment uh, in which children are being exposed to to fluoride.
2: Oh my goodness! Well, I I, I just I find it remarkable that uh, anyone would use something such as what I read earlier as a basis for saying that one of the top two most toxic substances on Earth is safe, especially to inject into human beings and babies.
0: It's incredible. It's incredible and very, very sad. I don't think this applies to most, most of the people in the medical profession, and I suspect with vaccinations, for example, that most of your, your people involved had no idea that this was organic mercury. After a while, thimerosal becomes a name. It's a preservative. So your vaccines have a preservative in them. You don't think much about it. And then suddenly, suddenly, people woke up to find out that this is actually organic mercury, ethyl mercury, and that they were injecting into babies when you added it all up. What about 100 times direct injection into their bloodstream of organic mercury, uh, 100 times higher than the EPA said was safe for people to ingest? I mean, it was the most extraordinarily stupid thing. And awful, but I suspect that most people didn't really know that that was going on. But when they did find out, I mean, the bad thing is that they didn't immediately stop.
2: You uh, also were talking earlier about the one part per million, about how when teeth seemed to resist tooth decay uh, at one part per million, even though they looked mottled, so they're be- you know they're beginning to be. Affected yet they're seeming to resist tooth decay. Uh, you had a, another telling quote in your book under the category promoters' spin, and you were talking about a uh, Dr. Frank Bull at a meeting of state dental directors held in Washington D.C., who was then the dental director for the state of Wisconsin, and he was trying to talk about how you know it, it was kind of being an apologist, how to answer opponents contentions. And he, sa- and he said, what are some of the objections that are brought up on this fluoridation program? I think the first one that is brought up is, isn't fluoride the thing that causes modeled enamel or fluorosis? Are you trying to sell us on the idea of putting that sort of thing in the water? What is that your answer? You have got to have an answer, and it had better be good. You know, in all public health work, it seems to be quite easy to take the negative. They have you on the defensive all the time, and you have to be ready with answers. Now, we tell them this, that at one part per million, dental fluorosis brings about the most beautiful-looking teeth that anyone ever had, and we show them some pictures of such teeth. We don't try to say that there's no such thing as fluorosis, even at 1.2 parts per million, which we are recommending but you have got to have an answer. And, Dr. Connett, that sounds, again, just like what's happening with vaccination. If anybody brings up the fact that we need to uh, reach for higher standards of safety, uh, a vaccine apologist will just tout, uh, but but looky over here, you know, uh, look at this good thing we're trying to say it's doing. And whenever somebody says that, Thimerosal, uh, mercury is dangerous. They'll refer to perhaps another shot that uh, doesn't contain it or addresses some other uh, malady and say, "But looky here, look, uh, vaccines in general are doing some good," and not address the fact that injecting a neurotoxin is unconscionable.
0: Yeah, I quite agree with you. What we're looking at here is public health policy is is almost. almost you're forced almost into spin because you can't go to the public and say um, there may be problems with this public health policy. You've got to be totally confident. You've got to negate any negatives and you've got to accentuate the positives. So fluoridation is absolutely safe and it is extremely effective. and You can't waver from that because you need the public's trust. And I think ultimately the problem with fluoridation and possibly with the thymusole is a betrayal of the public's trust. Uh, We need patients to uh, trust their doctor. We need doctors to be able to trust their professional bodies. We need the professional bodies to be able to trust the CDC and the other health agencies and the FDA and, and so on. But I'm afraid with fluoridation, this there's been a huge betrayal of that trust. Huge betrayal.
2: Yes. If somebody in a public health agency says, we goofed, we forgot to do the math, and by the way, we forgot to do the math with something that was a neurotoxin in the first place, instead of removing removing it completely, and there, the courts still out on that one whether it was ever removed completely, um, uh, and then it was... Uh, added back and forth with the recommendations for flu shots. If they say we we goofed and uh, fix fix the error, then they're afraid that's going to er- erode the public trust for all vaccines in general. Uh, so they prefer, as you said, protecting the policy instead of the public, and they leave it in there. They put it in there all the more with flu shots, for example, and make those recommendations to protect
0: the policy. Right, right. Now, um, there have been places where I think they could have got, you know, Bill Hersey says about this practice, Bill Hersey, a former EPA scientist, they're riding a tiger and they don't know how to get off. But there have been places, and there still are places, that they could get off this policy without losing the credibility, uh, without having a huge credibility hit, if they were smart. Um, science does not stand still. All they have to do is to invoke new science. And they did. In 1999, the Center of Disease Control admitted what many dental researchers had been finding for the previous 10 years namely, that fluoride's benefit is largely topical. It works on the outside of the tooth. And they virtually said, whoops, we were wrong. For 50 years, we believed that fluoride worked from ingestion before the teeth had erupted so in the baby. So the baby is accumulating fluoride from the water uh, into the growing tooth cells, and uh, it was protecting, making the enamel harder. And so when the teeth finally erupted into the mouth, they would be uh, hard and protected against uh, the acids from the breakdown of sugar. That was the theory for 50 years, and that's why pediatricians gave babies drops, and that's why they gave pregnant mothers fluoride tablets to, to, to help this process before the teeth erupted. Now they're saying, whoops, we were wrong. We were wrong for 50 years. It works largely on the surface of the tooth. Well, the moment they said that, they could have said, well, well we've got fluoridated toothpaste universally available, which is designed to work on the surface of the tooth. We have no need to expose all the rest of the body. And, by the way, we really have no need to force it on people that don't want it. I mean, that was the time, 1999, that could have been the end of fluoridation, but they didn't take that opportunity.
2: So many parallels here. So would it be fair to say that this is a drug prescribed in a mass medication format without individual consultation or consent?
0: It, it's, it's, the, it's the yes. It is a drug. Officially, it's an unapproved drug. The FDA has never approved fluoride for ingestion. So the most prescribed medication in American history, which goes to 180 million Americans every day in their drinking water, and a a worldwide 400 million people worldwide, has never been regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. There have never been any double-blinded, randomized Clinical trials for effectiveness administered by the FDA, which they do for every other drug. Uh, they have ne- and 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 the FDA is not collecting any safety data on this either. So it's extraordinary. Yes, it's an unapproved drug. There's no one regulating it.
2: And like with thimerosal, uh, body weight isn't isn't taken to, into consideration. So the baby but is getting. The same dose of fluoridation as the adult.
0: Sorry, so there's someone knocking at my door. Okay, yeah, I'm back. Could you ask that question again?
2: Let's pick up with that question when we come back from break at the Voice America Health and Ch- Wellness Channel with Dr. Paul Connett. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back with that question.
4: Com.
5: Mark your calendar and set an alarm so you do not miss the highly acclaimed talk show, Holistic Living with Tina Marie and Todd Allen. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific for inspirational, oftentimes edgy discussions on all that life brings our way. With celebrity guests, world-famous authors, and everyday people dedicated to sharing positive, uplifting messages, Tina Marie and Todd Allen bring you the very best in talk radio discussions, guaranteed to make you smile.
2: We're back with Dr. Paul Connett, author of The Case Against Fluoride, How Hazardous Waste Ended Up in Our Drinking Water, and the Bad Science and Powerful Politics That Keep It There. And before the break, we were talking about how, just like uh, with vaccines and and Mercury's Marisol, uh, there isn't uh, a totally ultimate uh, rational decision on who gets what dosage the baby is getting just as much as a child who weighs much more, or in the case of fluoridation, the baby is getting as much as the adult. And, Dr. Conant, why is this this fluoridation, this mass fluoridation of what is an unapproved drug a bad medical practice in general?
0: Well, it's, it's terrible because to use the public water supply to deliver a drug, means you cannot control the dose, that's a huge no-no. Secondly, what you were hinting at, you can't control who gets it. So it's going to babies, it's going to children, it's going to uh, people that are sick, it's going to the elderly, it's going to people who have poor nutrition, it's going to people who have poor kidney function. It's totally non And if you ask any pharmacist, is there any drug that you know that you don't have to control the dose? Absolutely not. Is there any drug that you can give to everybody regardless of their health or their their nutrition? Absolutely no. Is there any drug that you can give without individual doctor supervision, somebody to check to see side effects? No. Uh, Is there any drug on the market that the FDA is not collecting data about uh, side effects? No. And is there any drug that you can force a patient to take without their informed consent? No. So on every conceivable level, this is a terrible medical practice. And, you know, nature gave us a clue here. They like to say that one part per million, that's the level they add in artificial fluoridation, one milligram of fluoride per liter. They like to make that sound very small. It's one cent in $10,000. It's one inch in 16 miles and so on. Absolute nonsense. One part per million is actually 250 times the level of fluoride in mother's milk, up to 250 times. The level in mother's milk is 0.004 parts per million. And if we go back for a moment to that issue of dental fluorosis, everybody now agrees that the baby should not be bottle-fed with fluoridated water. In other words, the parents should not make up formula baby formula with fluoridated tap water because it's the first year of the baby's life where they're most vulnerable to developing dental fluorosis. So you, they should be warning parents. In every water bill, parents should be warned that they shouldn't be using a fluoridated tap water to make up formula. First, they should be told if their water is fluoridated or not, and if it's fluoridated, they should be told not to use it to make up baby formula, and also the baby formula manufacturers should be told to put a label on there, don't use uh, fluoridated tap water to make up the formula. Now, the, the <laughs> a- ADA has said that, and the CDC has said that. The trouble is they're not getting these warnings to the public. So we need the American Water Works Association that is supposed to have the authority uh, claims to have the authority over the safety of water. They should be requiring all their members to put this warning on the water belts that go to people each each day.
2: It's a really good idea. Yeah, I think you you hit another uh, eureka moment there when you said that they're saying it's in essence it's only a little bit, but they're not telling you that that only a little bit is, you know, uh, a gazillion times more than you're supposed to have in the first place. Like, so many parents were told about mercury in their children's vaccines. Oh, it's only a little bit. Well, what would a little bit of cyanide do? What does a little bit of mercury do?
0: Well, especially with mercury, because there's practically no safe level. There's practically no safe level of organic mercury for a baby. And, And they've gone to extraordinary lengths now to warn parents about not eating certain... Fish or not eating fish more than so much a month. They're going to extraordinary lengths to make sure that dentists are not putting mercury into the drains and, and trying to control incinerators for mercury emissions, all because they're worried that eventually the mercury will go into the sediments of lakes and ponds and rivers and be converted to methyl mercury, organic mercury, which will then get into the fish, etc. That's what they're worried about. And yet, at the same time, you have the health service injecting organic mercury directly into the baby's bloodstream.
2: Right. Because we are acceptable, collateral, I'm not saying we are, but they are in essence saying that we are acceptable, collateral, damage. For being human toxic waste dumps, because you can't pour the mercury down the drain, but you can put it in the mouth, you can inject it in the human being, and just like with the fluoride that's used in the water, it is commercial industrial runoff from fertilizer. We that's right. are at which
0: you was, can't you can't dump into the sea by international law. So, yes, there is a parallel here. You can't dump the fluoride chemicals into the sea by international law. They're rejecting here the almost infinite dilution of the uh, the sea, but we can put it directly into our drinking water. And the whole environmental concern about mercury, if you look at it, let me say it again, is the concern about mercury emissions is that the mercury will eventually end up in the sediments of lakes, be converted into organic mercury, bioconcentrate up the aquatic food chain such that when pregnant mothers eat large amounts of this fish, they will pass on this organic mercury to their babies. That's the concern. That's the concern of environmentalists, the EPA, and these other agencies. Meanwhile you have the health service taking the organic mercury and injecting it, uh, sanctioning the injection straight into the baby's bloodstream. I mean, this is, Makes this it is no Kafka-esque. Is, Kafka-esque.
2: It, it's not okay to get it indirectly through many steps, but it's okay, they say, in essence, to inject it directly or have it in, in, ingested directly. And, and that at a stage when babies are more developmentally. Oh, boy, need more coffee here. They're developmentally vulnerable, and it's cheaper for industry, for the phosphate industry, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, or others to directly inject or or have ingested this toxic waste into human beings.
0: Yes, and uh, my my huge concern here, uh, Terry, is this. When the baby is born, the blood-brain barrier is not fully formed. And at that point, the fluoride can get into the brain. This is the, Although the dentists are concerned about dental fluorosis, we're concerned about what it's doing to other tissues, the bone, the brain, and so on. We now have 23 IQ studies, most of them from China, but others from India, Iran, and Mexico, showing that at moderate levels of exposure, even as low as 1.9 parts per million, you can see a lowering of IQ in children. And instead of attempting to reproduce these studies, in fluoridating countries, none of them are doing so. We've only got one small IQ study from New Zealand, and all the rest of the fluoridating countries are satisfying themselves simply by critiquing critiquing the methodology. Same with the bones. There was a study in Mexico which showed that there was a direct parallel between the severity of dental fluorosis, which is an indicator of how much fluoride a child is exposed to before their permanent teeth have erupted, and of the, the incidence of bone fractures. The more severe the dental fluorosis, the more, the more the prevalence of bone fractures went up in this population. Again, they criticize the methodology. They don't attempt to look for it in, in the fluoridating countries. There's been practically no studies being done in fluoridated countries on many key health concerns. Arthritis, thyroid function, um, a lowered IQ, onset of puberty, uh, behavioral problems. All of these things could be investigated, particularly in children, using the severity of dental fluorosis for which we've got millions of data points, millions of data points. uh, But they're not doing it because, as we said at the beginning of the program, they're working backwards. This policy must be protected, and one way you protect is don't look. If you don't look, you don't find. But the absence of studies does not mean the absence of harm.
2: Right. Very good. Do most of the world countries practice fluoridation? Do many European countries practice fluoridation?
0: No, no. Very few countries practice fluoridation. About 30 have some some level of fluoridation. So, you know, one city, two cities. Only eight countries in the world have more than 50% of their population drinking fluoridated water. And most of these are English-speaking. Ireland has mandatory fluoridation. Australia, New Zealand... Singapore, Malaysia, Colombia, Israel, and, of course, the United States. Very few countries in, in Europe fluoridate their water. Only England at 10%, Ireland at 73%, Spain at 3%. The rest of Western Europe does not fluoridate their water. And guess what? According to World Health Organization figures for 12-year-olds, the tooth decay has been coming down in all these countries at more or less the same rate And today, you can't find any difference in tooth decay, whether the country is fluoridated or whether it's not fluoridated.
2: Eureka, Eureka. that is another parallel with the autism vaccine issue that disease rates were going down before the mass vaccination programs, And I encourage listeners to look to this book to see the many adverse physiological consequences of fluoride. It's really good on that topic. And you mentioned something else. Right before we go to break, I'd like to ask you, Dr. Conant, is the poisonous effect of fluoride cumulative from small doses over time?
0: Oh, absolutely. It it accumulates up to fifty percent of fluoride accumulates in the bone the kidney does a pretty good job of getting rid of about fifty percent of the fluoride each day but the other fifty percent concentrates and accumulates in the bone over a lifetime and eventually that gives symptoms like arthritis accumulation of fluoride in the bone and the tendons and so on and eventually it makes the bones more brittle and therefore a big concern is hip fractures in the elderly but it accumulates wherever tissues calcify so wherever things like kidney stones you'll expect to see fluoride the pineal gland accumulates fluoride because it's a calcifying tissue and very high levels of fluoride are uh, can be found in the pineal glands of of corpses where they've been analyzed and they've also found that in animal studies uh, fluoride lowers melatonin production and uh, brings on puberty earlier
2: well, Dr. Connett, um, again, this is this is so important and interesting, and I encourage readers to look to the book for further elaboration upon the physiological consequences. We're going to go to break right now, and we'll be back with Dr. Paul Connett. And we thank our sponsor, EndoMedica. We'll be
3: right back. Learn more. Live better, Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: We're back with Dr. Paul Connett and The Case Against Fluoride, How Hazardous Waste Ended Up in Our Drinking Water, and The Bad Science and Powerful Politics That Keep It There. And I'd like to let listeners know that this is a very readable book. Each chapter has a summary at the end that brings things together, and um, it's highly informative. And for those of you who um, are touched by, uh, autism or part of the autism advocacy community, you're going to notice a lot of parallels in this book. And something that sparked a parallel in my mind is that Dr. Connett talked about fluoride emissions from a steel plant in 1948 killing people and fluoride emissions from the metal industries causing dental fluorosis. And that reminded me of Dr. Ray Palmer's study about mercury emissions from coal-burning power plants in texas and the correlation with autism are you familiar with that study at all dr no, cohen I'm no
0: i'm not familiar with that no no
2: right they so they looked at mercury emissions down in texas and they also found correlations and so when i read the uh your description of what's it called the, the denora accident uh in was it pennsylvania 1948 Uh, I, I was really intrigued. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that?
0: Well, it must have put the fear of God into the many industries that were producing fluoride at that time. I should backtrack a little bit. In 1931, one of the researchers who found that fluoride was the cause of dental fluorosis was a guy called Churchill, and he was the chief chemist for Alcoa, the Aluminum Company of America. And what he found secretly, privately, he found out at that time, having established that fluoride causes this thing called dental fluorosis, he found out that there were cases of dental fluorosis in towns which had aluminum smelters but had very little fluoride in the water. So now industry is confronted with the notion, the worst thing imaginable, a very visible telltale marker that a, somebody, an individual, has been exposed to their pollutant so that those people can look around and say, Look, you've got dental That's caused by fluoride. Where is it coming from? And you look around, Oh, there's an aluminum smelter. Uh oh, that's not a good message for industry. Run the clock forward from 1931, and in 1948, you have this horrendous inversion in Denora. It's an in, inner valley with the steel and the zinc, I think, as well. Uh, factories in the the valley. And the pollution is trapped. And it kills 20 people. And it kickstarts the environmental movement. It kills about 20 people, makes hundreds and thousands of other people sick. And when independent people went in, they found that the thing that did that was fluoride. So now industry in 1948 is confronted with the notion that there's a telltale biomarker of a pollutant, which at one level causes dental fluorosis, which is visible, and at the other end of the spectrum actually kills people. And that is, uh, you can understand why they were really scared stiff. And that, you have to read Chris Bryson's book, The Fluoride Deception, to then appreciate the collusion, and this is totally documented, the collusion between the U.S. Public Health Service at this point and the Fluorine Lawyers Association, the lawyers that are set up to defend industry from lawsuits on fluoride pollution. The, the U.S. Public Health Service, so this is in 1948, okay? And then the U.S. Public Health Service endorses fluoridation in 1950 with none of the trials completed and with practically no health data on the table, no science on the table and you yeah you want to believe in a conspiracy that's where to start looking.
2: and and speaking of conspiracies that's that's one of the ways that uh, that people who are opponents of bad so-called health practices like fluoridation are marginalized because the apologists, the vaccine apologists or the fluoridation apologists will say that we're being conspiracy theorists theorists, and that's how they are using language to marginalize the logic and the truth of what we are trying to say to protect public health. And this book has a very telling list of the many pro-fluoridation arguments that attempt to marginalize the assertions of fluoridation opponents. And when people from the autism community read this, they will see the parallels it is staggering. So, Dr. Connett, what happens when doctors try to tell the truth or express concerns about fluoride?
0: Well, we have a long litany of people that have, have been um, harassed, intimidated, lost their jobs. When Phyllis Molenex found that fluoride uh, affected behavior in animals and and accumulated in the brain, which up to that point people denied. She was fired. She was fired when her article was published. When William Marcus at the EPA raised concern about the cancer, the animal cancer studies, saying that was more cancer than they were reporting, etc. He was fired by the EPA. They later had to reinstate him because he was fired, obviously wrongly. Um, there have been other researchers whose life was made a misery. Iona Rapoport, who looked at Down syndrome as a function of fluoridation, he was chased from university to university. They have no hesitation of, they first try to chuck out the author, the messenger. If they can't chuck out the messenger for some reason, then they attack the methodology of the, the study. Uh, But today they they use a very broad brush. They say that people that are opposed to fluoridation are either wackos or they use junk science. They're getting all their science from the Internet. We have written this book to demonstrate emphatically the science behind fluoridation is very, very weak. The evidence that it does any good systemically, the evidence that swallowing fluoride reduces tooth decay... Is practically non existent. It's very poor scientifically. And the evidence that fluoride, well, there's no question that fluoride harms people. That's well established. What we argue is there's not an adequate margin of safety between the doses which have harmed people in relatively small studies to protect everyone in society which in, that's going to get fluoridated water, which includes the very young, the very old, the sick, and so on. There's no adequate margin of safety. And, and so ours is a scientific book. We've tried to push the conspiracies to one side. As far as the beginning of fluoridation, yes, you can read Chris Bryson's book as to why it continues today. I don't think that the dentists and doctors are the villains. The only thing that's wrong is that they're not reading the literature. I think there may be a few people at the top who are manipulating, and I think their main concern is right now is loss of credibility, loss of their reputations and a loss of, and, and, and liability. And we throw out any notion that people are, are using fluoridation to dumb down the public or to limit the world's population. There's some crazy things out there. We distance ourselves from there. I think we have fluoridation on the ropes from a scientific point of view. We are three scientists. We, amongst us, we have one biologist, one physicist, physicist, and one chemist, and a chemist who specialised in environmental chemistry and toxicology. And uh, I think that between the three of us, we presented a solid scientific case. And as you rightly pointed out, it's easy to read for the ordinary person, but if you want the scientific documentation, it's all there.
2: Yes, and I highly recommend this book. Uh, It is available at Amazon.com, one of the places that it is available, The Case Against Fluoride, How Hazardous Waste Ended Up in Our Drinking Water, and The Bad Science and Powerful Politics That Keep It There. Dr. Connett, thank you for enlightening us about the real story behind fluoride and the dangers it poses.
0: Thank you, Terry, and should should say that the publisher is Chelsea Green.
2: Uh Okay, Chelsea Green, thank you very much to the publisher as well. And to our listeners, my guest next week is Dr. Lisa Hannafin. Don't forget to visit the National Autism Association's website at www.nationalautism.org to learn about the National Autism Conference November 11th through 14th in beautiful Tampa, St. Pete. For questions about this program, please email me at taranga at autism1.org. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, manufacturers of enzymes to complement your therapeutic diet. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.